Hello, and welcome to the We Run This podcast, a show celebrating the Stanton College Prep, Class of 2010, and how we continue to kill it 10 years on. I'm Paulo Bautista. This week on the show, I want to tell the story of three of our classmates. In some ways, they're pretty similar. All of them are world travelers, with six of the seven continents accounted for between them. All of them have pursued higher education beyond their bachelor's degrees, and all of them in one way or another have had language play an integral role in their stories. At the same time though, while when you reduce it down to those highlights, you can see the similarities, the differences are just as profound and varied. None of them could have ever predicted they'd be where they are today, 10 years ago. And yet, in many cases, the coincidences and happenstance along the way that took them from one chapter of their lives to the next could not appear, in hindsight, to be more seamlessly interconnected if you had mapped it out all in advance. But enough from me. We have a long episode ahead of us, so let's have them go ahead and introduce themselves. Carly Fuller talking to you, Paula, from Tasmania, which is the island off the southeast coast of mainland Australia, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania. My name is Jordan McKenzie. I'm currently actually in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, and I've been here since March. I just finished my second year at Georgetown University, and I have about three or four years left in a PhD program in linguistics. I'm Irina Wong. I am currently in Denver, Colorado, just moved here from Providence, Rhode Island. I am a designer and writer, or at least that's what I've been recently putting on all the bios, but (laughs) that's a pretty loose definition. Now, all three of our classmates looking back on Stanton with fond memories, even when some of those memories were about the rigorous curriculum and how much work we had to put into our academics. I use the expression in the trenches together because I do feel like what we all accomplished at Stanton and what we were really pushed to do is quite remarkable in terms of the lack of sleep and just hours and hours and hours of focused dedication and work. The reason why it was feasible and why it was possible is because we were all doing it together and we were all kind of in this collective struggle. So it sounds a little tacky, but I'm kind of impressed by our former selves. And now I'm like, I don't know if I would have the mental energy to do that now. It's really forged like a group of lifelong friends who we understand each other. We understand what we went through. Um, We understand like kind of how to rise to the occasion. There is a sense of like masochistic solidarity that we had academically that honestly back then it felt sort of self-imposed a little bit, but I do miss it. One of those fish in water situations where when I left high school, I had assumed that the rest of the world would continue being (laughs) like Stanton was. And that's just totally not true for better or for worse. While Irina was nominated for Most Artistic in her yearbook, Carly was nominated for Model Stanton Student, in part due to not only her academic activities, but also her athletic commitments. Yeah, I think back to um, the way that I leaned into the Stanton culture of extreme studiousness and you know extreme diligent time management to fit in all of the extracurricular activities. And that does seem like quite a distant version of myself. Yeah, wow. And just thinking back to, you know, how incredibly important it was to like be ready for the next soccer match. But I'd get up extra early to go running every morning and then, you know, either catch the bus or catch a lift with somebody. 
I remember JTB and the traffic and the hours sometimes that it would take to get to school. So I kind of felt like I had these two worlds of, you know, I had left Neptune Beach to go to Stanton and do this, this hard thing um, with all of these really fascinating, super smart people all around me. I can't believe it was 10 years ago. It's funny how, how distant the memories feel. And of course, part of the Stanton experience was some very memorable teachers that they look back on fondly. 100% Ed Merce, who was my French teacher for six semesters. He just inspired really this respect for the language and a real permanent dedication because he's not a native speaker of French and he came to speak it at a very, very high level. And so I think that kind of respect, which is really curiosity about how language works, really is what inspired me to think about language in a deeper way. Well, Miss Sara Lucia was amazing. She ran a tight ship in the art room. I remember there was this one project where we had to pick different categories out of a hat and one bucket was for material or one bucket was for emotion and one was for medium and one was for a historical artistic style or something. And I remember drawing out all these different words that I had to figure out how to cobble them together um, and make sort of a project out of those mismatched words. Um, and that was really fun because that's the kind of thinking that I really loved exploring as a designer early on, as opposed to an artist that was just expressing myself through the visual medium. It was more like, how do these things fit together and how can I communicate what I was given in a way that is more than its parts. Definitely Miss Shepard's European history class stands out as this shining beacon in my memory. I remember her leaping on top of various desks and gesturing wildly and keeping us all very much focused on the lecture. Oh, Mr. Burley. Oh yeah, what a good time. I just remember, I think that's where Alex Johnson really flourished. Now, after graduating from Stanton, all of them actually took some trips abroad. In fact, Carly and Irina took the same trip together. That summer after graduation, Ali Jura and Irina Wong and I went to Europe for a month-long trip, you know, just staying in hostels and getting on trains in Portugal and Spain. That was quite a trip because it really felt like this initiation into adulthood and independence. Like you talked with Carly about our Euro trip post Stanton graduation, which was undoubtedly like very formative for me as well. Just being far away from home with two friends and a very, very fun and open world. <laughs> like those kinds of opportunities, I think have given me not just like life experience or just things under my belt, but also just like an, a sort of an emotional confidence that I think is a really lucky. Meanwhile, for Jordan, he actually took the entire fall semester off to travel to the Middle East. It didn't really feel like any of the places I applied to were going to work out. So I decided to take the first semester off. And my mom has a cousin or has a cousin. And he was at the time um, working at the U.S. Embassy in Amman, Jordan. And so I went and moved in with him and his family. And it was like a immersion into Arabic. And while I was there, um, so I, I took classes at University of Jordan. I traveled around, so I got to go up to Syria a few times, meet some of my family there, go to Lebanon, go to the West Bank, Turkey. After these trips, all of them eventually ended up in Gainesville, though to be honest, it was initially a rough transition for all of them. Jordan and Carly had both initially hoped to go to other universities, but for one reason or another were not able to and instead ended up at UF. And Irina wasn't entirely sure if UF was where she wanted to be in the first place. 
As such, they all were, in one way or another, somewhat unsure about what they wanted to study, though over time, they eventually found something that spoke to them. My dream back at Stanton was to do foreign service. My thought was that will let me travel the world and learn these languages and learn about all these cultures and meet new people and have essentially collect all these experiences. But I never stopped to think like what would be required of me if I did foreign service or what it's like to be in the diplomatic corps or something like that. What I was really going for and what I really wanted all along was to learn languages and to to learn about, you know, how people do it in different countries and how life is lived elsewhere. So I applied and got into UF and I actually started at UF in January. And that was where I first took linguistics classes. It really opens your mind to a new way of looking at language that's very systematic very descriptive, inherently descriptive. It's not how language should be spoken or, you know, what sounds correct, but um, how language is spoken, how speakers use language, how language functions as a scientific, but also ontological lived reality. And then at one point I was lurking around the greenhouses, kind of sussing out what, you know, the horticulture degree would be like and things of that nature. And I met this amazing professor named Rose Koenig, who was involved in developing the standards for organic certification. Yeah, just a few conversations with her and I was signed up for the agroecology specialization. Also in my sophomore year, I discovered the Latin American studies department and I was quite fixated on doing a study abroad program. It turned out that there was this really great program, this exchange program with Brazil. And so, you know, I started immediately taking Portuguese lessons and I took this amazing unit called Peoples of Brazil, taught by um, Dr. Rosana Hesenji. And she was just this amazing woman that really gave me this incredible introduction to the culture and music and people of Brazil. I cannot thank her enough because, you know, that was really the first time that in any of my undergrad courses, there was any real focus on social justice issues. After taking her unit, I ended up doing a minor in Latin American studies. And it really, it stands out even more than the agronomy major, to be honest with you, is like the most significant thing that I did academically. The fine arts program, um, I was loosely in it. I wasn't super dedicated to it. But luckily, in the first two years, you're meant to sort of explore all the different mediums and also take whatever electives you want in different departments. So it was perfect for me because I wasn't sure at that point, like at all, whether I wanted to be a printmaker or a photographer or a painter or a graphic designer, like these were all on the table. I enjoyed the most, I think, being able to take very strange classes in conjunction with my studio art classes. So I remember really vividly classes like Fireflies was just taught by, you know, some Professor James, I think. Um, He had a PhD in some specific species of firefly that was only found in that area in Florida. And he just taught this entire sort of entomology course about biological evolution based on just fireflies and we just went out every class period was a field trip essentially he took us out to this field um, in rural Gainesville and he knew the flash patterns so well and so he could recognize the species that were flashing in the air and he would respond to the pen light and so we're all in this dark field (laughs) all these college kids standing like with their mouths wide open and 
all these flashing firefly lights are just getting closer and closer because they think that he's the female responding. But it was just one of those magical moments where I was like, this is what college should be. <laughs> um, and those kinds of experiences I was able to take right back into my studio art classes. At this point, all of them started spending significant time away from UF. For Carly, she of course had her study abroad program in the south of Brazil. The southernmost state just north of Uruguay is called Rio Grande do Sul. The culture in that area is quite different. So it's much more the gaucho culture of the Pampas. Um, so everyone's really into horses and leatherworks and they're always drinking yerba mate from the gourd. Yeah, and it was pretty intimidating because I did um, three different units in Portuguese. After Stanton and my obsession with GPA, I was really worried that you know doing these units in a second language was really gonna really going to ruin me in that regard. It was actually, it was hugely important because I realized after doing that exchange how little the GPA actually mattered and how much those kind of interpersonal experiences and getting my eyes open to another culture. Jordan ended up transferring to FSU. However, he also ended up beginning to spend his summers in Cuba. So I guess one year after he graduated, I was um, volunteering at a St. Mary's Church mission. The preacher woman at the time was invited to go participate in a music festival in Cuba. And she told me, and I said, oh, I want to go because I kind of had the travel bug back then. And that was a truly life-changing experience in that I, I don't know, I didn't speak Spanish. I could understand about half of what people were saying, but I just knew there was something special there. Back to Jordan, my classmate was from Cuba. She was from a city called Camagüey, which is about 10 hours east of Havana by bus. So I met her, she was my classmate, and she's now one of my best friends. And so the second time I went, she was actually back visiting her mom, and I went and hung out with them in Camagüey. So I basically was kind of adopted into their family in Cuba, and and those have been you know the people that I go and visit every summer, and they're, they're like a second family to me. And so Cuba has been very important for my research in terms of thinking about um, language use, um, variation in Spanish, variation in English, and I can talk about that later. One of my Cuban friends told me Cuba is a country of many contrasts and many things that just don't add up. And I think islands in general are very fascinating because there's all these histories intertwined. There's a lot of circularities. There's a lot of paradoxes. Meanwhile, for Irina, C ended up transferring across the pond, as they say, to the University of Arts in London, partly driven by her desire to really explore the world of typography in a way that she felt she wouldn't be able to at UF. End of sophomore year at UF, I then initiated the transfer into University of Arts London. The program itself was three years. So the degree was called Graphic Design Communication. Um, it was pretty wide open though. There were people that ended up you know, going into the film industry, people that went into fashion photography, and then a lot of people that were just more focused on typography in a traditional sense, like type design. So when I talk about London now, I, I was there from the ages of 20 to 25, which is, you know, by any measure, a very formative time. I discovered a lot about what I cared about in the world. And to do that sort of outside of America meant that a lot of it was um, critical of where I came from. But that being said, London itself is is just wonderful. Like I, I don't have too many feelings about it. <laughs> I really feel like I grew up there in a sense, um, in addition to 
obviously growing up in Florida and in this you know third culture way growing up in a sense in Taiwan from time to time when I visited but those I think the intersection of those three cultures uh, in my life so far have definitely made me who I am and in a sense um, make me care about what I care about. Now, before we go further, I want to make sure that we're all clear on what each of our three protagonists were studying and, to them, why it matters. First, we have Carly and agronomy. So essentially, it's the science of agriculture. So it kind of brings together soil science and um, plant science. And what was really exciting at the time at the University of Florida is that they had just come up with these different specializations. And so my specialization was ecological agriculture, or also called agroecology. So I was really interested in sustainable food systems. You know, the, the classes were fine, but I think a lot of what was really interesting was some of the work experience. So for a little while, I was working with the UF beekeep, Beekeeping Research Group. We were doing these trials to see if domesticated, you know, managed bumblebee colonies could achieve the same pollination as the traditional Italian honeybees. Next, Jordan and linguistics. Uh, I studied French. I was really just seeing that I really am interested in the way language functions systematically, as opposed to just studying literature as what's, you know, one subjective interpretation I can come up with of this text, but rather like why do verbs agree or why, you know, is the genitive marked this way or whatever. Things that I would kind of try to ask my professors, but they didn't really have a way to answer it. Or it wasn't, I just, I realized that studying literature and studying language from that vantage point wasn't what I wanted to do. And I really wanted to get into a much more systematic, scientific, kind of rigorous way to approach the phenomena. So that's why I applied to do a master's in linguistics. It is the scientific study of language. Um, and that's more kind of what theoretical linguistics is. And then sociolinguistics, which is what I'm more interested in, is the study of language as a lived um, ontological social reality and how language functions, you know, paradigmatically within society. The big misnomer, the big um, misunderstanding is that a linguist is someone who speaks many languages. You can be completely monolingual, monodialectal, and be a linguist. It's just the idea of studying any language or language with a capital L as, as a human function. And then you have these lowercase languages like English or French or German or whatever. And finally, Irina with graphic design, with a particular focus on typographical design and type design. Typographic design is mostly manipulating letter forms in a way that forms a composition on a page and communicates in a certain way, be it from movie titles to a legal document. Type design is the design of letter forms themselves, where you're sort of zoomed in at 2000% tweaking Bezier curves on Adobe Illustrator, and it's, it's a much more granular practice. And then you're final product is a set of letter forms that form a typographic family. It is in many ways just a practical issue in terms of legibility. Okay, I, I don't want to read this very long document if it is straining my eyes on the computer screen. You can also use the same skills of manipulating letters to advertise 
a certain product. I mean, this is the part of the question where I, I want to lean into like typography doesn't matter <laughs> like to me anymore in that sense. And so um, when I was getting into it as a visual medium, in my final year at UAL, I wanted to try and invent a language. And so, and you know, design a matching typeface and script and all these things. Ultimately, I came out of it with the realization that like, you know, like what's the point of me creating more stuff for the sake of an intellectual exercise when there are so many languages right now that are currently on their last legs. Um, they don't have scripts. They have the last generation of speakers dying out now. That was, that was sort of a turning point for me. This turning point actually led Irina to begin focusing on endangered languages and working on the project with Mong Nyu. Mong is a native of the Chittagong Hill Tracks in Bangladesh. While the main language of Bengali is taught in schools, the indigenous people there speak an endangered language called Marma that isn't being taught in schools. This educational situation led to a high number of the Chittagong Hill Tracks people dropping out as early as the fourth grade. I was working with him to design educational materials for his school. When there's no existing curriculum, you kind of have to play with the idea of how do we teach letter forms and how do I teach a language that I don't speak? Um, and how do I teach a language that most of the teachers don't speak? And so like there are all these um, extra factors. But again, I'm sort of reminded of that art assignment at Stanton where I just drew a bunch of random things out of a hat and just like, okay, this is we're going to have to make something cohesive out of this. <laughs> this work actually ended up leading to Irina being selected to give a TEDx talk at Bristol about a year after she had graduated from college. After the break, we'll explore more of what Irina, Carly, and Jordan did after graduating. But in the meantime, here are a few clips from Irina's TED talk. I'll catch you on the other side. The thing I love most about design is its multidisciplinary nature. Um, you can apply solid design thinking to nearly any field and pinpoint the essence, augment the impact, and resolve problems. For me, as a chronic dabbler in many things, it's better than having a finger in every pie. It's more like being trained as a taste tester to sample any pie and be able to try and make it taste even better. And that's awesome for me. Um, it's really fun to explore all these different fields through something that I love. So I'm not here to insist that Photoshop or a great typography can single-handedly save the world or that they were meant to, but I do believe that there's every reason for us to channel our specific passions and skill sets into the right places, people, projects, all these things that can collectively bring about progress and change. Drop by drop, the bucket fills, and even though we can't always supply the water, uh, resolving a leaky bucket or aiming an unaimed faucet, that can be of great consequence. And that's the definition of design. Thank you. So we're currently over halfway through this limited run podcast series, and I hope you've been enjoying it. 
If you've been putting off submitting your audio submission, like the procrastinators I remember many of you being from high school, though maybe that was just me projecting, uh, you're starting to run out of time. I hear having a set deadline helps with getting things done, so if you can get me your submissions by Saturday, October 3rd, that would really help and guarantee that your audio will make it into the final episode. Just use the Voice Memo app on your smartphone to record a message with your name, where you're located, and what you've been up to or anything you want to share with your classmates. Send the MP3 files to me on Facebook or email them to me at ninjaboymedia at gmail.com. That's N-I-N-J-A-B-O-I-M-E-D-I-A at gmail.com. As a reminder, I'm going to be making a donation to the Jacksonville Public Education Fund for each submission I receive. If you know of somebody else in our class who has an interesting story, be sure to let them know that you like to hear their story on air. Or if there's someone you really want to hear from, you know, let me know and I can ask them directly to submit. Sometimes people don't think their story is interesting until you tell them so directly. In fact, Irina, Jordan, and Carly were all recommended to me from other people as someone I should include in this podcast. Anyway, full details on how to submit your audio will be in the show notes. Alright, let's get back to Intrepid Adventurer Stories. So, last we left off, our three protagonists, Jordan, Carly, and Irina, had just graduated from their respective universities, FSU, UF, and UAL, with their respective degrees, French Literature, with a minor in Linguistics, Agronomy, with a minor in Latin American Studies, and Graphic Design Communication. Jordan continued with his education, going straight to his master's degree in linguistics, returning back to the University of Florida. He even picked up another language to focus on, Swahili, which was helped by UF's Strong Center for African Studies. So I had started studying Swahili while I was at UF, just out of curiosity, wanted to learn a new language, wanted to learn a Bantu language. First summer after my master's, I had gotten a fellowship um, to go study intensive Swahili in Tanzania. So while I was there, I was making, you know, all these observations about how it's actually spoken, things you don't read in the textbook. And so I was curious, are there correlates with people's social standing based on how they speak Swahili? How could we represent those? And so um, I came back to Gainesville during my second year and I knew a few Swahili speakers in Gainesville. So I did a bunch of interviews and that was what I eventually wrote my thesis on. So it was specifically focusing, very fine-tuned on the pronunciation of L and R um, by first language and second language speakers of Swahili. Very, you know, classic kind of sociolinguistic study, but where you just take a very, a specific variant. So we know in English, the word uh, S-I-N-G-I-N-G is the same, whether one says singing or singing, but we know that there's all these social meanings attached to singing as opposed to singing. Is it done systematically based on some kind of sound pattern or some kind of thing in their brain slash mouth? Or is it socially prompted? And does it show something about somebody's social markers, whether their ethnic origin or their gender, sexuality, um, age, prestige, whatever? Getting the fellowship to study Swahili in Tanzania was amazing for Jordan. It, it was like somebody pinched me. I got, I'm being paid and got a fellowship to come here and live here and just study Swahili all day. And to me, like a grammar nerd, getting to study like with a 
um, you know, somebody who just sits in front of the class and teaches for a few hours, and then you go out in the world and go to the market and go buy fabric and have um, clothes made, and you're just speaking Swahili all day and eating Af and Tanzanian food and whatever. Um, that was just like a dream. That I do exhort everybody to go. After his time in Africa and with his masters, Jordan ended up doing a Fulbright scholarship to study the nomenclature of fruit in the Caribbean. While I was finishing my masters, I knew I wanted to kind of stay on the African studies train. I also wanted to circle back into the Caribbean stuff since I'd been going to Cuba. And so I applied for a Fulbright, but I applied to study tropical fruit nomenclature. So looking at how the pronunciation of fruit names, vegetable names, spices in the Caribbean, specifically in Trinidad and Tobago, reflected this myriad history of Indian, African, European, and then eventually Creole Caribbean identities and how all of those are reflected in what people call their food. Every island in the Caribbean has this very long, rich history of colonial encounters, slavery. Part of my research goals are to shine light on that, um, really to see the Caribbean as this kind of crux of, of human history and also kind of sitting at the crossroads of the development of capitalism in Europe, the development of the so-called new world, the slave trade, the circulation of goods throughout the world, like sugarcane ending up throughout the Caribbean and becoming this you know, major impelling force for global capitalism, slavery, whatever. Funnily enough, Carly also did a Fulbright to try to return to Brazil, though this time to the northern region. It had felt like a long shot, but Brazil was actually looking for a very specific set of candidates to help with the project to make marketplaces for the produce of small rural farmers to promote green organic farming practices, as well as to slow the move of families to the already crowded cities. And Carly just happened to be the person they were looking for. It was kind of surprising because I wasn't really expecting to be selected for it. But Brazil was specifically looking for agronomists, which was convenient. And they were also specifically looking for people who already spoke Portuguese. So I seemed to be the ideal candidate by weird serendipitous chance of the land. And at one point I was near a small city called Pureza. And I mentioned that I really liked playing soccer. It wasn't very common in that region for women to play soccer at all. So everybody was just really confused. Like you, you like to play soccer, not just watch soccer. And I ended up um, spending a large portion of those two weeks learning how to play fuchi volley, which is like volleyball, but without your hands. And at one point, you know, there was this big tournament and the whole town watched. Yeah, my teammate and I ended up being runners up in the um, Pureza fuchi volley tournament, which I was very proud of. So I just wanted to let Hemphill and Haygood know that all of their training back at Stanton was, you know, was put to good use in the far northeast of Brazil. After her time in Brazil, Carly ended up back in the States, Richmond this time, where her parents had moved to. There, she, again by happenstance, came across an opportunity that just so happened to match her skill set. Through a friend of a friend, ended up getting hired to teach Portuguese language lessons on Skype to various executive types all based in big French companies, which sounds really strange, but it was mostly through Air France that had opened flights to Brazil. So they needed some of their people to have a basic understanding of Portuguese. And then also um, L'Oreal, the makeup company. 
This opportunity actually enabled Carly to indulge in her wanderlust. She took advantage of Australia's working holiday visa. Basically, if you're under 30 years old with a US passport, you can go to Australia and begin working for six months at a time or so before eventually needing to take vacation and travel around the country being a tourist. Given that she could teach defense executives from anywhere, Carly figured, why not? You know, after I spent a bit of time there and got a little bit established, I started with my remote work, just kind of traveling down the East Coast of Australia. And yeah, I got to see some really, really stunningly beautiful places. Got to sit on lots of sea cliffs and look for whales and sharks. Just kind of, yeah, lived a little bit of a, a life of luxury. Only working about four hours a day, teaching language lessons to people in France from the East Coast of Australia. It's a very strange time in my life. Now, from mainland Australia, how does Carly get to the small island off the coast known as Tasmania? Yeah, so that actually has 100% to do with Miss Irina Wong because she had been living in London for a few years and I desperately, desperately wanted to catch up with her. And so, you know, we'd been kind of discussing how we could arrange some sort of reunion. She was quite keen to go to New Zealand and do some traveling in New Zealand, but I already had you know, a vehicle that I had been set up to live in with like a little kitchen and a little bed in the back and the visa in Australia. So we ended up compromising and deciding to meet in Tasmania. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Irina flew from London to the actual end of the earth to reunite with me. So I was really happy about that. Yeah. We lived in a Toyota Camry station wagon somehow pretty cohesively for a full month. Tasmania is quite amazing because half of the island is World Wilderness Heritage Area. So there's a lot of wilderness. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Cold temperate rainforests, lots of really bizarre endemic species. So speaking of Irina, aside from visiting Carly and giving TED Talks and working on a number of other language preservation projects, ranging to those in Ecuador, to the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, to helping preserve Creole, she also started working as part of Pentagram, a graphic design firm in London who had a number of clients, including the annual London Design Festival. Essentially, the job that Pentagram had is basically to refresh the identity of the event. And so why I loved it so much is that you had those constraints again. So it was like, it has to fit the London Design Festival overall brand. But each year, because it's a festival, it needs to be very visible within a very cluttered city. Um, it needs to have a very recognizable brand that's clearly London Design Festival related, but it's new because it's different from last year. And so there were a lot of creative restraints. And also that's always like a super exciting way to work is to just try and work with limitations. By this point, Irina actually no longer considered herself an artist, despite the yearbook superlative, but a full-on designer. I asked her what the difference between the two were. More and more, the paths have sort of diverged and converged again in the sense that as I got into the realm of design, I started to reject the label of artist because I started associating art with expression for the sake of expression. So creating work that is valuable intrinsically because it is something that you as a person had to say about the world or about yourself or about anything. Um, and then people can interpret it as they wish. And that is the value to them as well. So that's like, <laughs> that's how I sort of started categorizing art against design. In design, I started seeing as something a little bit more 
applied um, and not in a commercial sense necessarily, but applied in the sense that you were sort of using the same creative muscles and the same craft muscles to make something in response to a problem. Where this now conflates again is more and more because the problems are getting bigger and more expansive and it's not as easy as like, okay, my toothbrush isn't the right shape because it hurts my wrist and so I'm going to design a better handle. Um, when it's more than that, when it becomes like incarceration and climate change and the opioid crisis, like all of these problems, you cannot apply the same sort of design problem-solving language um, to those problems. And so a lot of what designers are doing now are employing skills that I remember using and, and sort of honing in art days, sort of speculative design and critical design. So it's design that exists to provoke cultural change in a way that is very similar to what I would consider art. And so I think the lines are blurring again. I definitely don't call myself an artist, but at the same time, I also question what exactly the role of a designer is. And I think it can be a little bit of both, honestly. We'll come back later to more of Irene's thoughts on her perspective of what design is and what it can accomplish. But Jordan's thoughts on the importance of linguistics kind of mirrors this. His field of study of sociolinguistics is more than just what is language, but also how language affects people and how we perceive language and how people use language can lead to inherent biases. The notion that studying linguistics is edifying because learning about these structures is interesting really doesn't resound with many people because, you know, the difference between a genitive and a possessive, you know, who really cares? Language is an inextricable part of people's identity, people's social identity. And we know that much marginalization of people and much discrimination against people proceeds along, consciously or not, linguistic lines. The more we study the systematic nature of language, the systematicity that underlines every variety of language, and then, and then you juxtapose that with the lived reality of people who suffer based on the way they talk, based on the color of their skin, based on their lived experiences. It, it, it really is a call to action to say, you know, that there's a disconnect here. And maybe, I know it is, it is a little bit nitpicky, but maybe if people did study the deeper structures and see what's really being conveyed through language, that they would realize that, you know, that the, the structures, the systems, the, the functionality is the same, which is a question all people should ask before they critique someone's so-called grammar is, is their intent clear? is what the speaker is trying to say, either through the pronunciation or the formation of the words or the spelling or the grammatical structure. Is it clear? Because if it's clear, it is likely probably the case that it is not ungrammatical. It is not an issue. It is not anything. It might be non-standard. It might not be the way a middle-class, upper-class white person in you know the Northeast would say it, but that doesn't mean that it's incorrect. So I think all of linguistics is kind of unified in this, this effort to be very descriptive and to take things not as they appear, but really just to, to, to get to the heart of how things are in terms of how people use language as a system. Now, with all this in mind, after his master's, Jordan began pursuing his PhD. Or rather, he would have, but in fact, he initially didn't get into any of the programs that he had applied to. And so it was like, oops, 
maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I should switch to a different field. I finished up the Fulbright. I didn't have anywhere to go. I went to Gainesville to visit my, you know, friend. An opportunity arose. And so they said, you know, we, there's a summer program at UF where they train um, people for eight weeks who are then going to go out in the field for like a year. And so they said, do you want to be like a language partner? And you can, you can sit and talk to the people in the afternoons and we'll pay you. And I said, oh, that sounds fun. I don't have anything to do. And then one of my friends said I could house it for her. So I ended up going back to Gainesville. And then in the process of that, one of my old professors from UF said, do you want to teach um, one or two units of Swahili at UF? And I was like, I don't know, am I good enough? They're like, sure, you're good enough. I went from Swahili student to like three or four years later being a Swahili instructor. And then in the process of that, other people found out that I was hanging out in Gainesville. So they said, do you want to um, work as a copy editor, which is totally uh, pull your hair out type work, but it's really fun. Linguists do not like style guys, but we use them. You know, we don't want to tell anybody how to talk or what's the correct or preferred or whatever. But, you know, written language is different than spoken language and written language does need a series of standards. And then in the and during that year was when I applied again for a PhD and um, was lucky to get into Georgetown. So all's well that ends well. Jordan's not the only one pursuing a PhD actually. After Irina left, Carly was still in Tasmania. On a trip to a popular rock climbing spot, she came across someone who would change her life. I showed up at the car park and there were lots of vehicles that had, you know, there were ropes in there, there were climbing shoes. So I was pretty sure I was at the right place, but I just couldn't find the humans anywhere. So I put my pack on and wandered down this track and was kind of trying to listen for human voices, but all I could hear was bird song. Until at one point I could hear this distant mandolin being played. So I kind of followed, <laughs> followed the sound of the mandolin. Eventually found what is now one of my closest friends in Tasmania, this guy named Tom, and he had a Hawaiian shirt on and ripped jorts and he was playing a mandolin and it just it felt like I had kind of come home with the <laughs> with the Hawaiian shirt and the jorts. I felt right back in Florida, you know? And he ended up leading me to a group of people who were climbing, about half of whom were American, and they were all PhD candidates at the University of Tasmania in the biology department. And they convinced me to apply for a job as a research assistant at the University of Tasmania, which I was able to do. Yeah, after doing the last two months of my working holiday visa, living in Hobart and working at the university, I was offered a PhD position at the university. If getting offered a PhD position for just showing up feels kind of odd, well, Carly had a bit more of Lady Luck on her side. Or maybe Carly is Lady Luck herself. It was so serendipitous and strange because the professor that I was working for that just happened to be, you know, I sent emails to three different professors. He happened to be the only one that responded. He really needed somebody to work on some kind of spatial ecology stuff centered around protected areas in Brazil. But a lot of the data sets they were working with were in Portuguese. And it just happened to be the end of the grant cycle. So he really needed to allocate the rest of the funds that he had already applied for, that he had said he was going to do this work on Brazil, but he hadn't actually gotten any of his students to do it yet. And then I just appeared in his office one day asking for a job. And it all felt way too serendipitous to turn down. Um, so after, you know, I worked, worked really hard for those two months and tried to kind of prove that I was capable. Yeah, and then we just had these discussions. They're like, yep, yeah, well, we've got to fill this PhD position. So I think, think you're our person. I'm specifically looking at 
how different forest patches um, can still be ecologically functional, even when they're surrounded by kind of intensive human land uses like pasture, agriculture, or timber plantations. Meanwhile, back stateside, Irina was studying all sorts of things at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. A big part of my gap in knowledge, I felt like when I was mentioning the tool set of a graphic designer earlier, I felt like I had a, a really big lack of knowledge when it came to the physical supply chain and when a lot of the bigger sprawling wicked issues and problems of the 21st century sort of trickle back to the idea of how things are sort of fed through the supply chain in such a globalized era. And that really is the specialty of industrial designers in a lot of ways. At RISD, I will remember the materials, wood, metal, and glass, like very, very much so. I, I think working with flat stock and like you said, 2D and digital applications, I was very comfortable with that going into RISD. Um, and I was just so blown away by the depth of pure um, materiality that you could get into just with like, you can't even manipulate glass without understanding how physically it works as an, as like a element, you know, like, it's just so crazy. Like, and that really fed into my thesis thinking of just transfer of energy, the carbon cycle, thermal expenditure during material processes is something that's never factored into all these green calculations and just working with the materials. It's so easy to understand that immediately in a way that reading it in a textbook would never really feel the same. So to summarize exactly what Irene's thesis was about, since that part of the interview took about 20 minutes, uh, it basically has to do with carbon sequestration, the process of removing carbon from the atmosphere to try and combat climate change. However, in the past, policies that accomplished this sometimes led to negative effects, especially in areas where residents were of low income, because they were not empowered to have a seat at the table where these decisions were being made. For example, you might want to set up windmills or solar panels to generate green energy, but in the process, the best place to set these up or where the waste byproducts would end up would be on, say, sacred indigenous lands of Native Americans. When we're designing these things, we're not just slapping a solar panel on, but we have to think of like where it comes from, where it goes, at whose expense, and like who can afford it at whose expense. And So rather than simply designing typeform or teaching material as she did with her undergraduate thesis with the Marmot language, Irina has moved on to trying to design methods to facilitate conversations between communities, government, and science where we can all still accomplish the goal of carbon sequestration, but in a way that not only does not negatively impact these marginalized groups and areas, but also can lead to an overall net benefit for these communities. Irina, I hope I did a good job of summarizing your thesis. If anyone is interested, definitely reach out to her for a probably more accurate rendition of what she was talking about. This all leads back to Irina working on what she calls ethical design. Those grant-based projects you do with language preservation have now evolved to include topics such as nuclear non-proliferation, as well as, of course, climate change. So how does designing typeform for near-extinct languages connect to these ecological considerations? My answer to that is basically that all of them are sort of, they have this aspect of existential risk, right, that affects 
the wider world and all the inhabitants of the world. But on the other hand, it's also with all these systemic issues, there are always people that are disproportionately affected. So um, it's a question of like, how do you reduce existential risk while also redistributing the effects of power hierarchies and things like that? So with language endangerment, I found very quickly that the things that upset me as a language and letter form nerd was that these like beautiful ways of expression were going extinct. And therefore, along with those ways of expression, whole sort of cultural narratives were going extinct. That upset me, but very, very quickly it became clear that language justice is always entangled with sort of extractive regimes. So um, in most of the places, especially with Ayenge in Ecuador, when they're talked about in, in media now, it's always in conjunction with the oil companies that have infiltrated the area. And so as the culture itself falls under these imperialistic structures that are based in extraction, that endangers the language. And so it sort of became an effect rather than a cause, um, even though originally I saw it as the effect of the death of the language. Um, and so all these things sort of became intertwined in a way that there's, I guess, no other way to describe it than systemic. And therefore now when I try to explain what kind of designer I am slash am trying to become, it's always a sort of systems design and transition design um, rather than graphic or industrial or product. Uh, because all those things sort of have to zoom out a lot and, and work on seeing what the connections are between all the different issues. And sometimes that doesn't look like a product. It doesn't look like a physical artifact. Sometimes it's just like facilitation or policy regulations, things like that. Now, all three of our classmates have had crazy stories so far, but obviously they're not over yet. Where do they think they'll be in the next few years if they dare make any predictions? Jordan has his PhD research to work on. It combines everything he's wor been working on up to this point, linguistics, a focus on Afro-Caribbean experience, and his special relationship with Cuba. So I've set my sights on studying the English that is spoken in Cuba. First and foremost, I'm interested in heritage diaspora English in Cuba. So people whose parents or grandparents came between the year 1900 and 1920, thereabouts, they came majority of them from Jamaica, but others from Barbados. And then all these broader questions of identity and, and blackness and Caribbean-ness. Cuba also, until the revolution, had a lot of de jure racism, um, which in name was removed, but not in practice, as we know here. So questions about the status of these people who had before the revolution, a kind of somewhat privileged status and that they knew English, but not privileged status and that they were black. And then with the revolution in name turning things around where there was no de jure racism against blacks, but English became very stigmatized. So that's one part of it. And the other part is, is the English that people have spoken who are not of any kind of Anglophone origin. So Cubans who are now learning English to interface with tourists who come or Cubans who are learning English with aspirations of moving to Miami. For Carly, she also has to finish her PhD. But after that, who knows? I really have no idea. I think I'm still kind of pinballing by what fate will um, offer up. You know, Australia, it is a pretty great place to live. After completing a PhD, you do have access to a postgraduate visa where I could stay and live and work here for another four years. So, you know, strangely enough, this weird island near Antarctica does feel quite a lot like home. So I would, I would like to keep the door open to 
potentially be able to stay here. But I guess we'll just have to see. Farina, ironically enough, she's also interested in the Fulbright in the same way Jordan and Carly were. I would not be surprised if I was out of the states again within the next year. I would really like to do Fulbright. There's a Fulbright slash National Geographic fellowship that I really want to snag. <laughs> that would be dreamy. I would love to sort of explore something with the Finnish government. The Finnish government has this really fascinating little like design team called Citra, and I think I'm ready to start working more deeply within the public sector as a recognized designer instead of just like as an interloper who shouldn't be there. <laughs> That said, as much of a traveler as Irina has been, she's been thinking about putting down some roots, even if traveling has been an education in and of itself. I, in the past ten years, have gotten to see and do a lot, and meet a lot of people, and see a lot of different places, and that always felt like a net gain. Like that always felt like the better option. Like always, it was just like, why would you,、uh, why would you experience less when you can experience more? You know, like when I first arrived in in London, it would be inconceivable for me to go to the same restaurant twice. Like it just didn't seem, and that's like a very tourist mentality in the sense that you know you're passing through. You want to consume every experience once so that you can consume the next experience faster. And I was like that for a long time, not just when traveling, just just in life. In the recent years, I have sort of found it's such a different sort of experience that happens when you go to the same place over and over and over again.、Um, and that's definitely not an experience that that is replicable through just experiencing more instead of experiencing deeper. I don't know. I'm excited to see where that goes, and I'm excited to see where I can like overlap the two because I'm definitely not down to not totally down for settling right now. <laughs> Carly has also gotten more appreciation for good old Florida after having spent so much time abroad since graduating. You know, having lived in Brazil and then having been in Australia for so long, I think I've got an appreciation for Florida that I definitely didn't have when I graduated from Stanton and so desperately wanted to get, you know, kind of as far away as I could and experience things that would be as different as possible. And I think I'm really appreciating, you know. The diversity in people that we had at Stanton and the beauty of Florida itself—I've kind of gotten to satiate some of that wanderlust. And I think over the past ten years, yeah, I've just come to a really greater appreciation where we came from. I really enjoyed all of the stories this episode because they kind of show how we don't really know where the road will take us, but everything will work out in the end. I mean, for Carly, because she ended up not going to her dream school, she ended up discovering agronomy and Latin American studies, which led to her studying abroad in Brazil, which enabled her to be the perfect candidate for Fulbright, which gave her enough proficiency in Portuguese to take the remote teaching job, which allowed her to wander all over Australia before eventually ending up in Tasmania and the research position that needed her specific agronomy and Portuguese skills. According to her, though, it actually even goes back further and stemming to her decision to not go to her neighborhood school, but instead take the long commute over JTB to get to Stanton. Yeah, I think I have been incredibly lucky. I also think back to you know the decision to go to Stanton rather than going to the neighborhood high school that was two blocks from my parents' house. The people I met there and the amazing things that they've gone on to do—it just kind of made me feel like. 
I could take all of these really random opportunities and that some kind of interesting story would come from it. So I think a combination of a lot of luck and a bit of willingness to do some very strange seeming things um, has led me on this really circuitous path to now be speaking to you from Hobart. Jordan definitely feels the same way, and he's realized that ending up at Georgetown, when he did, was meant to be, despite not getting there the first time around as an undergrad. And he has some closing thoughts for us. The one thing I would just tell everybody, and I think everybody's probably learned this on their own, things are super circuitous, and there's a profound irony in that I always thought I would go to Georgetown for undergrad, and then I realized that wasn't what I needed and ended up there for grad school. And every other thing in the intervening 10 years was what now in retrospect seems completely random and completely unintentioned and things that I would never have like chosen or thought I should have done, but it all ended up working out. And what are Carly's closing thoughts? You've been such an inspiration to me. I'm so glad I was surrounded with you guys in such formative years. Thanks for being so weird. It's great. <laughs> Keep it weird, yeah. And finally, Irina. I'm not a particularly peppy person about these sorts of things, but I do remember just being really, really proud to be in the class of 2010. I don't know exactly what about it it was. I think, again, with the cumulative nature of winning pep rallies and um, building upon the idea that we were the best was, you know, it sort of was a self-fulfilling prophecy in that sense. I just loved the variety of people. Like, that's something that will stick with me forever. I think Stanton had conditioned me in the best way to learn the most when I'm around people with totally different interests at this same, you know, we might all be performing at a high level, but it's in totally different directions and in different categories. And that I think super informed my trajectory in college and still now. Keep running it guys. I can't wait to see where the long and winding road takes you. Special thanks to Carly, Jordan, and Irina for sharing their stories with me. There was so much in these stories that I actually had to cut down a lot from their interviews, and this still turned out to be the longest episode of the season. So thanks to you for sticking through with it. Maybe I'll share those stories in a bonus episode. Irina has a personal website similar to Sirwin and Austin from a few episodes back, which I'll link in the show notes, as well as her full TEDx talk. Definitely reach out to her, Carly, or Jordan if any of the ideas they've discussed in the show about their research has sparked your interest. The opening and closing music was provided by Michael Xavier Barirwan of the class of 2010, aka Namekian Silk. Check his stuff out on SpoundCloud and Spotify. Other music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Editing and production is provided by Ninja Boy Media. Also, a quick note, the views and opinions expressed on the show reflect the personal thoughts of those involved alone and do not reflect those of any other groups or organizations. So while our three featured classmates this episode definitely had some crazy paths that no one would have expected them to take, they're by no means the only one. Next week, we'll talk to two of our classmates who, while doing art isn't their full-time gig per se, still manage to find ways to channel their creativity in unique ways, ranging from creating viral social media campaigns to developing a unique reputation in the fighting game community as an esports player. Until then, I'm Paulo Bautista, and remember, we run this. There is some of the most fun slang that you can possibly imagine. So, you know, if you're going to the liquor store, you're going to the bottle-o. If you're going to the gas station, you're going to the servo. If somebody wants to know what you're doing this afternoon, they ask you what's on this arvo. 
A lot of O's, a lot of abbreviations. Yeah, it's really good fun. Vegemite is delicious. I had a piece of Vegemite toast just before I started this, uh, started this interview with you. There's actually, there's a platypus that lives in the river um, about 100 meters from my house. So I can, I can show you guys a platypus. Look at you. You're even using the, you're even using the metric ah, system. Look at me. <laughs> fully, fully integrated. Hey. Does, the platypus, does the platypus have a name? Uh, he's just the South Hobart platypus. I don't know that he does have a name. Yeah. Okay. He just has a title. He doesn't have a name. Yeah, he has a yeah, title. Yeah, exactly.